the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, Dr. Eric Miller. Eric Miller is professor of history and the humanities at Geneva College in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. He also directs the honors program at Geneva. He is an acclaimed and well-known historian. He, uh, he has written a very good book some years back, uh, a biography of Christopher Lash, the uh, noted intellectual. The title is Hope in a Scattering Time, A Life of Christopher Lash. It came out with Erdman's, as I said, a few years back. Uh, this is a book I returned to uh, over the years, uh, really derive a lot of inspiration from Lash's example, and I love uh, Miller's portrait of Lash. And so I thought, hey, why not combine these worlds and, and have a lot of fun and talk to uh, Dr. Miller? So Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Now, you and I share an appreciation for Christopher Lash. Yours goes much deeper than mine and is uh, has taken much greater shape than mine. Mine is mostly in my head. But um, <laughs> what what drew you to write a more than 300-page book of Christopher Lash? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a story for maybe even another podcast. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of autobiography that's implicit in the book, as is the case in in most books by historians. Um, but I was uh, actually I was I was drawn to Lash in the aftermath of the election of 1992. I was a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I was studying church history and philosophy of religion, hmm. and um, I had grown up as a kind of young Reaganite. I was born in 1966, and uh, the first time I voted for president was Reagan's re-election. I was a freshman in college. I had sort of been one of those teenagers who had uh, an unusual interest in politics. It was kind of the age of uh, family ties and Michael J. Fox and oh, yeah. people who are in your audience who are old enough <laughs> to remember those those times. But uh, anyway, it was the, the Reagan era was the era that I was, uh, you know, that I was kind of formed in politically. And in 1992, with the election of Bill Clinton, after four years of George H.W. Uh, Bush, it, it was like a, a, an earthquake. It was the classic political earthquake that realigned, re, that, that changed up the power for the first time in 12 years. Um, and I, it just shook me loose enough to want to rethink some basic ideas about politics and its relationship to culture and the intellectual life. And as I said, I was at Trinity and I was highly um, stimulated by all kinds of different thinkers that I was reading and meeting. So um, I was ripe for somebody who could help me rethink some of the things that I thought perhaps I had understood 
And um, I came across a book by Lash called The True and Only Heaven, Progress and Its Critics Mm -hmm. that had come out in 1991, in which Lash leads with a chapter uh, in which he talks about the obsolescence of left and right. And in the aftermath of that election, that sounded about right to me, um, that maybe there was something fundamentally marred with the basic structures of our ideological life, um, and that there needed to be some fresh ways to approach not just the issues, so to speak, but the world itself, and maybe find other kinds of issues that were being left behind um, in the classic paradigms you know, of the right and the left. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to read Lash and uh, and found myself curious, not exactly comprehending, but very curious about his politics. But it was actually more the brilliance of his of his critical um, sort of style that that drew me in. Actually, mm-hmm. that he he just had this immense learning and brought it to bear with such sharp focus, uh, and he had been very deeply immersed in all different kinds of literature. And, uh, and so I was kind of, I was, I was just captivated. So I started mm-hmm. to read him and, um, and eventually I, I inquired about studying with him, but it turned out that he was at the time, uh, already suffering from cancer. Uh, he would die the next year in 1994 mm-hmm. at, eight, at, at age 61. Yeah. Um, so I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Delaware, and I started to talk about Lash early on there. And somebody said, "You got to talk to the historian Guy Alchon. He's a Lash uh, admirer, and he eventually encouraged me to write a dissertation about it." Wow! So, so that's uh, that's the book was a long time in the making, in a sense. I can tell that's a really interesting story, and and filled with all sorts of things. I'd love to double click on. Just for our listeners, Christopher Lash, last name L-A-S-C-H, lived from 1932 to 1994, as Eric just mentioned, a uh, longtime professor at the University of Rochester, recruited there by Eugene Genovese, uh, a, a noted 20th century historian, and uh, became most famous with his book, 1979 book, The Culture of Narcissism. You have an absolutely killer anecdote uh, in, in the book, in your book. Uh, Hope in a Scattering Time, where you talk about how <laughs> Lash was in People magazine, uh, yeah. a People magazine issue that featured Olivia Newton-John, probably known a little bit more to a different generation than mine or than some listening to this podcast, but a very famous woman, a very famous uh, actress and, and starlet. And uh, here's Christopher Lash, a, a figure who um, breathed fire against the kind of cultural outlet like People magazine uh, being featured. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed that, Eric. Yeah, he had to be uh, pushed into the interview. He refused a lot of interviews and connections with, with the book, which was a bestseller. Uh, but he got talked into this one. And I'm not sure he ended up being too happy with it. It's, <laughs> it is. It's if you get to the library and check out the the issue. It's yeah. It's comical just to see the the page pages following one another. You know, and then you find this this interview with this guy on the. Uh, narcissism in yeah. people in people yeah which again was uh you know the pre-internet world was uh, everything we associate with the internet in one magazine yeah. one magazine basically at least some of the the 
celebrity type stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes life just serves you up irony that is so rich. You would think it was fantastic. You know, somebody created it, but it's true. It's real. It happened. It happened. Yeah. Lash. Um, Honestly, I, I think that anecdote makes a lot of sense for our conversation. There's so many places we could go, but Lash was an ill-fitting figure throughout his life, mm-hmm. not just um, mm-hmm. with, with the, the publicity surrounding the culture of narcissism, which, as you said, became the surprise bestseller. How often mm-hmm. does really, really thoughtful cultural criticism, which is pretty contramundum in many ways, end up on bestseller lists and in People magazine. But he was an ill-fitting figure for much of his career, as you very nicely chronicle. He's a child of progressivism, Midwestern progressivism, uh, born into a university family, very educated mother and, and father alike. And yet, in different twists and turns, he finds himself the rest of his life not really fitting anywhere, not really fitting uh, on, on the academic left exactly. A lot of his writing... Um, very much uh, critically engages that side. Also, definitely not fitting neatly into a conservative or Republican paradigm, to say the very least. Why do you Why do you think that was the case with Christopher Lash? What was it about him that mm-hmm. made him so ill fitting in in so many respects? Well, I think it was that question that probably made the whole project endlessly interesting to me because it's I I never. I'm sure I got to the bottom of it, or I think I got, <laughs> if I got to the bottom, I'm sure I got to the very bottom of it. Mm. Um, I think that he had a sort of moral compass and an anchor that he himself was maybe kind of mystified by in terms of its foundations. Mm. Um, Interesting. He, uh, I think he was born into a world that honored culturally some ideals that they had simply inherited that were just assumptions that had to do with uh, community, family, uh, sexual ethics, and so on. And even though, as you say, his parents were uh, were progressives and eminent progressives, his father was an editorial writer uh, for the Chicago Sun for a time, mm. um, was the, uh, actually one of Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing um, mm. when he was in, when he moved to St. Louis. His mother was a PhD in philosophy, um, and uh, and he was raised an atheist. So I think he had inherited a, a way of life and a way of seeing um, that didn't have uh, a kind of philosophical foundation underneath of it per se mm-hmm. that would support the ideas that he found himself holding to about these things like family, sexuality, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, and uh, I think that there's another sense in which he um, was very drawn to uh, a, a version of the left that had never been widely known in, in the United States, coming out of Britain, um, that really was employing left-wing, uh, a kind of left-wing ideology for the sake of culturally conservative ideals, mm-hmm. so that you could restructure the economy in order to sustain the kind of Burkean communities that are associated with the kind of traditionalism on the right. Um, and he never really let go even after he had, he had become very doubtful of, uh, the, 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 the worth of Marx, for instance, uh, in a way that was different from his kind of an earlier period of his life. He, he still hung, uh, on and defended uh, 
a way of thinking about culture that was deeply related to material structures, mm. uh, to social relations, to social class. And that made him not fit in very well mm. in a Democratic Party, Republican Party, a left and a right that was pretty much unified around a kind of vision of liberal capitalism that saw it as, if not quite unproblematic, always at least as good as we could do. He he never accepted that, mm. that stance. Mm-hmm. So he was always seeking for other structural possibilities that could make possible uh, the greater chance of the kind of human flourishing that he was very uh, convinced of is necessary for human well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So for and for him, that centered on the family uh, as the the kind of crucial institution for uh, for democracies that would that would do well, that would yes. survive, and so. Yeah, it, it's not a, it's not the kind of position that you're going to see uh, featured on CNN, you know, or uh, you know Fox News. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's very interesting to me. Uh, in in addition to think through his theological reading, you bring mm-hmm. out at numerous places how, especially later in his career, he mm-hmm. is reading Augustine and really vibing with Augustine, and then near and dear to my heart. Um, he's reading Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, mm-hmm. and um, talks about how Perry Miller got him onto that, that sort of thing. Um, right. But clearly, you know, doesn't exactly know what to do with either of those thinkers in, in kind of a mm-hmm. full-orbed way. I, I'm not meaning mm-hmm. that in an intellectual sense. He's, he's a brilliant man. Right. And yet he, he is, as I read your reading of him, he is very much mm-hmm. connecting with different insights from those kind of big God thinkers with this majestic vision of life and, and family mm-hmm. and order and all these sorts of things. And yet he never quite, as a, at least as I understand your portrait of him, he never quite gets his arms around the Lord and around Jesus Christ, the God man. Um, do you think that's accurate, Eric? I think that's a, I think that's an accurate reading of what he's left to us. I, I'm, I'm not sure what you know where he had taken these ideas himself in a, in a in a deeply personal way. He was he was pretty he was a very reserved person socially. Uh, he was not given to confessional writing, uh, and um, so he has a brief autobiographical portrait. In the uh, in the true and only heaven, which ends up being his last major book, and uh, and he gives some interviews at the end of his life in which he talks about this has been drawn into the into these religious thinkers. Um, but yeah, he had he had he had encountered Augustine as a as a young student at Harvard, and he was reading the Orthodox thinkers at a day when many non Christians, people who weren't necessarily practicing faith, were reading people like Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Tillich. Um, but, uh, I think as he's, I think as he moves along, he becomes convinced that he needs to not simply write off the possibility of a kind of ontology and even metaphysics, uh, that, that needs to be investigated. One of his former students, a Catholic named Dominic Aquila, um, says that he, uh, kind of sees him as a kind of phenomenological, thinker, someone who's very interested in studying 
the kind of moment by moment lived experience of human beings. Um, and as he sees this, I think he also finds himself drawn into this realm of religion that has been so foundational for human civilization and uh, becomes more skeptical of the skepticism against it than he is of the religion itself. And when he takes that turn, I think he finds himself uh, in the presence of people like Jonathan Edwards, uh, and he finds that a lot of their insights seem to comport with his own sense of things in general and at large, grand, tiny. Um, so uh, he has great admiration for the Puritans. Whether, you know, what, what his actual personal relationship to these ideas is in, in terms of the, I, I, I think it seems to me that in the true and only heaven, there are a couple of passages in which he makes it clear that he's, uh, it, that it's the idea of a personal God that ends up being a kind of stopping point for him, uh, mm-hmm. something that he's puzzling over and thinking through. And he's reading people like Emerson and other 19th century thinkers who are going to, you know, kind of move the American Puritan tradition in a different direction. And he finds their thinking on questions of the personhood of God, I think, convincing. Um, mm-hmm. But he's still reading people uh, like Niebuhr at, and Jacques Ellul, for instance, some of the French uh, Protestant social theorists to whom he uh, he finds great affinity with. So I, I, I'm not sure it's a, it's a big question, and um, and I'm happy not to be able to to, <laughs> to make any kind of final announcement on that. Sure. Um, I, I I respect the mystery of it for sure. Well, you handle it with real sensitivity and and care. Uh, he seems to be a man as you as you just talked about in True and Only Heaven and and some of his other writings, letters, and so on, who. Mm-hmm and you have a phrase like this toward the end of your book, sees real value in religion, but not so much in ecclesiastical communities. Um, mm-hmm. To your knowledge, I'm quite certain of the answer here, based on your research and my other reading about Lash, he was not a member of a of a church, certainly, that you, again, that you know of, correct? No, he, 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 he was not, no. And he, there was... From what I could see, there was not uh, a kind of church going. Well, he wasn't raised in that world. That wasn't the world of his, you know, of his childhood. But um, I think it's not quite fair to say that he didn't have a respect for the value of ecclesiastical traditions and even ecclesiastical communities. Uh, he speaks very highly of the effect, the social effects, the cultural effects, political effects of the Catholic Church. Hmm. Um, he uh, he gives an address. Um, a, a speech, uh, maybe it was just a lecture at a Catholic um, college in New York toward the end of his life, in which he in which he makes all kinds of, uh, or not, I shouldn't say all kinds of claims. He makes a claim, a strong claim for the importance of Catholic schooling and education. Uh, in one of the interviews toward the end of his life, he he, he actually says that uh, a whole lot of what we think of, or a whole lot of what actually is constructive and fruitful yet in American civilization emanates from pure from the Puritans. And of course that's a very ecclesiastically embodied community. So I think he had great respect for the structures of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just think in terms of his own personal identity, that, that wasn't, um, that doesn't seem to be a point that he had arrived at. Yes. And that's, that's what my question 
um, was was trying to chase down. Not so much yeah. that he didn't have. Ma- I think he. I think you're right. He has major respect as I read him. Uh, of course, you've mm-hmm. read far far more of him than I have. Mm-hmm. But he has major respect for religious communities at a right. personal level. Uh, that mm-hmm. respect, at least as the record seems to show, so far as I know, mm-hmm. did not transmute into actual, let's say, membership. Um, right. Or even lots of uh, attendance. I mean, I, I'd really yeah. be fascinated to know if he did go to certain churches or religious groups yeah. or that sort of thing in order to kind of I, I, he's just such a deep thinker. I, I can think <laughs> of preaching uh, that that I think he'd very much enjoy hearing. And I can think of, I don't know, high liturgy or something. The the, the rhythms of his mind and his soul mm-hmm. seem to. Um, reflect the kind of interest in those things that a lot of people of his ilk would have. But, but I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had great respect for the Puritan tradition of uh, prophecy uh, in the sense mm-hmm. of prophetic teaching and, and preaching. He, he, I think he very much saw himself as in that lineage uh, in, in a certain sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, when I read about him, I think of of Jesus' words in Mark twelve thirty four. He says to, uh, you know, a, a conversational partner, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've thought this in recent years about, uh, about Jordan Peterson, of mm-hmm. course, uh, a figure of no small fame for various reasons. Today, opinions mm-hmm. vary about Peterson's uh, program and, and, you know, different views and that sort of thing, his stances he takes. And yet he's a similar figure in that, uh, in at least this respect. Very learned, um, very gifted, uh, not standing directly within the Christian tradition. And yet, um, of course, Peterson is Canadian, but uh, so I won't say American, I'll say Western. Very Western in that um, Lash and now Peterson have that kind of prophetic impulse, uh, a, mm-hmm. a very kind of prophetic impulse that they bring. Again, not, mm-hmm. not to bear first and foremost on the affairs of the church. But mm-hmm. into culture. So even though, even let's go back to Lash. Forget Peterson for a minute. Mm-hmm. Even though Lash uh, is is not an ecclesiastical man in the sense of belonging that I know of, he, mm-hmm. man, he outdoes a lot of theologians and ethicists mm-hmm. in his critical thinking, in his pursuit of the ideal, um, mm-hmm. even in kind of a little bit of his sermonic effect mm-hmm. to his writing. Oh, sure. Sure, right. He, uh, I mean, the Puritan tradition of the Jeremiah, mm-hmm. uh, he he believed in it. <laughs> <laughs> he believed that human communities need this sort of uh, teaching, and he 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 um, in confrontation. He 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 studied uh, different social scientists who were trying to develop typologies of um, you know different forms of public address, and he had, he he re- would review book. Uh, thinking of a book review where he talks about the Jer- the tradition of the Jeremiah and prophetic witness. And mm-hmm. um, so he, he, I think you're right. I think that what, what folk like Lash um, have, have a, have is a vision of human flourishing uh, that really can speak back into Christian communities. And one of the most interesting things about the research on Lash was reading the number of, of Christian ministers who would write to him hmm. um, writing themselves from within a Christian framework and sort of asking for more wisdom or could you come and speak to our church about this? And, um, and there was actually one of the, when I was first discovering Lash, one of the, one of the points of discovery 
was that I was reading a lot of Christian literature, uh, people like David Wells or Oz Guinness, mm-hmm. who were quoting Lash. Mm-hmm. And I and I didn't know Lash, but I knew that uh, I really respected people like Guinness. And uh, and so there was something that, that, you know, that drew me into this into this intellectual world that he had discovering them. And it was very different, but there was still so much that was consonant um, and sort of fit harmonically with a lot of the things that a lot of Christians were studying in the broader times um, uh, were, you know, were concerned about. Yeah. He, he's a, he's definitely a critic and I would guess mm-hmm. gives permission to a lot of his contemporaries um, you know, to, to be a, to be a critic, um, mm-hmm. in, in the most meaningful, helpful man of letters kind of right. sense, everybody today right. is effectively a critic. Um, right. uh, social media platforms have really unleashed the ability mm-hmm. for everyone to, to be a mm-hmm. critic. Lash is, is so remarkable to me because his critiques seem 40 to 50 years ahead. You know, you hear that thrown around mm-hmm. a lot about, yeah. about authors that people like. That's one of the most common ways to praise him. He's ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. Christopher Lash is almost undefeated by my lights (laughs) in terms of foreseeing where the culture was headed. And and that really caused him to kick back hard against his his own academic culture, um, Mm -hmm. a culture of narcissism, irrespective Mm -hmm. of the left or the right. I mm-hmm. I laughed to myself as I reread your book recently, thinking what Lash would have to say about much of social media, um, mm. way ahead of his time there. I think. Yeah, it uh, it is kind of staggering. I, I've been actually thinking about it in terms of the uh, the latest the, the latest political turns that we've been taking over the last uh, five years, and uh, and rereading parts of his last book, The Revolt of the Elites, which was published posthumously uh and it's it's a collection of essays that are on the theme of really social class and the widening division between the elites and the Hmm. you know sort of ordinary americans and boy it's hard not to it's hard to read it today and not think um exactly what you just said that he was really on to what was going to be a major shift in our political landscape Hmm. uh 25 years down the road um, in terms of uh, the the kinds of, of class divisions that we're seeing now, uh, uh, and the and the political realigning taking place like that, the Democratic Party is now um, what I think I just heard a political scientist say that uh, looking at the election results this week, that if your precinct, if your voting precinct is thirty to thirty five percent college four year college degrees, is a Democratic precinct now. Wow, and. Uh, so the the ways in which the classes have been identified with education these are all concerns that he's taking up uh in the late by the late 80s early 90s and was yes. prepared to focus on with a major project uh when his when his cancer took him mm. so i yeah i and of course the narcissism uh sort of dynamic that he was he was looking at 50 years ago um or began to look at 50 years ago uh is something that's I don't see that going away either. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I think that's yeah. one that people are going to be revisiting. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Very good words. And that's something else that, that's yeah. something that's really interesting about him too. If I could just add this, that he, uh, 
uh, I think that it testifies to his enduring power as a thinker is that even though a lot of the ideas that that buttressed his thinking about narcissism, for example, he was very much um, uh, he was very deep into a kind of Freudian understanding of human personality and social dynamics and all of that. Even though he himself rejected that framework or walked away from it at least uh, in the succeeding years, yes. the power of his vision stays. And even if you don't you know, sort of uphold the Freudian uh, explanation for it, you see that he was actually seeing something and then looking for the theoretical framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's one of the most impressive things about him was just the astuteness of uh, kind of the critical eye and then looking for the, the possible explanation uh, in the, uh, you know, in the, in the discourses that we, uh, you know, that we are part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have some I have some bones to pick with Lash um, as I read him. Uh, I, I don't agree with all elements of his case, including his Freudian elements. Um, mm-hmm. And I would not trace things back to capitalism as he does in terms of this sort of master cause of, of various bad things. But mm-hmm. I think he is a figure that a thoughtful Christian, a Christian student, uh, a Christian of any kind, can read and profit from. Uh, I think he's he's mm-hmm. one. Furthermore, that you can be a, almost any position on the political spectrum and read and find yourself mm-hmm. nodding with him, and that's really that's really sure. unique. And I think that's true about your book more broadly. Hope in a scattering mm-hmm. time. Uh, I, I think it's um, I think it's a it's a remarkable achievement. Jean Bethke Elstein has has passed on, but she says uh, in terms of an endorsement of the book, it's an intellectually in intellectual inquiry, excuse me, and a moving personal portrait of a true American original. I love mm-hmm. that phrase, intellectual inquiry, because mm-hmm. it does seem to be that. Along those lines, as we wrap up today, um, very profitable mm-hmm. discussion for me at least, um, what what are you inquiring about these days, Eric? What are you working on um, in, in your in your professorship today? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I'm actually uh, in the midst of a study of what I'm call uh, what I'm thinking of as the new localism uh, that I see emerging over the last 50 years uh, as this as this as our society and the nation has become more and more uh, globalized and at the same time somewhat paradoxically fractured. Um, we, uh, we have all kinds of political movements, intellectual movements that are trying to work toward the recovery of particular communities, particular places. And, uh, so I'm in the midst of a study that's centering, is kind of using this as this rhetorical center of the work and life of Wendell Berry, uh, another writer, uh, more of a, a poet and a novelist, as well as a political essayist. Yes. Um, and uh, and then the different and, um, so I'm looking at his work and then all the different kinds of movements that are pulsing um, and inter- around his work and intersecting with it and trying to tell a story of uh, of the last 50 years through the perspective or through the lens of uh, of these localist movements. Mm. Love it. So, Barry is another uh, one who who I would have some differences with in terms of the economy because the free market has made widespread dissemination of his books you know, happen. And, yeah. and yet, and yet a, a second figure who everybody can read and profit from yeah. just a, just mm-hmm. a, a brilliant man. Um, so that's, that's right. a really cool project to hear about. 
Yeah, I'm actually working on an essay for uh, a, a just recently uh, started publication called Local Culture uh, that's going to be coming out with an uh, with an issue on Christopher Lash in the fall, hmm. and I'm writing an essay for it on Barry and Lash uh, in relationship to one another in a kind of more in an intellectual sense. They didn't know each other, but in kind of intellectually, politically, um, I see them as part of the same the same general political tradition. Um, of decentralist, populist, uh, agrarian um, politics. Man, that is too cool for school. I can't wait to read that. Yeah, well, you got one. I hope it happens. Yeah, you, you got Thank one you. reader for sure. No, you'll have I many. Always, you need to start with one, right? <laughs> you'll have many more than that. Your book, Thanks. "Hope in a Scattering Time," won a, uh, an award for uh, for excellence from Christianity Today, and I commend it to listeners who want to think more thoughtfully about life in, a, in this world and who want to engage one of the, the best critics of the last 100, 200 years, Christopher Lash. Uh, and, and so I thank you for coming on the podcast today, and I thank you for your intellectual work, Eric, and I, I, I hope it only continues as you were just talking about. Well, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to City of God podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.